Because I am a graduate of Yale Divinity School and serve on its boards of, board of advisors, I've had interest in how the university was going to handle the matter of possibly renaming the John C. Calhoun Residential College. It's in today's news, actually. Though this issue had been simmering for decades, it roared into life in the last half of 2015 following the murder of nine African-American church parishioners in Charleston, South Carolina, by a self-described white supremacist who had posed with Confederate flags and photos. John C. Calhoun was also from South Carolina, graduating from Yale in 1804 as valedictorian, eventually serving the United States as Vice President, Secretary of State, Secretary of War, and as a United States Senator. But he left behind a legacy of a leading statesman who used his office to strongly advocate for slavery and white supremacy. As a national leader, Calhoun helped enshrine his racist views in American policy. And while other southern statesmen and, and slaveholders treated slavery as a, quote, necessary evil, unquote, Calhoun actually insisted it was a quote, positive good, his words, unquote. Beneficial to enslaved people and essential to Republican institutions. As a result of these considerations, Yale has now decided to remove his name from the school since, in the Yale president's words, the legacy of Calhoun conflicts fundamentally with the values Yale has long championed. Unlike other namesakes on our campus, he distinguished himself not in spite of these views, but because of them. So, in effect, what has happened in the last year and a half is that Yale did some serious soul-searching and wound up recovering its root values and commitments. This required stripping away encrusted barnacle-like accretions of privilege, legacy, and tradition until the underlying values were laid bare. When that was done, the decision was obvious. Now, of course, it's tempting to say it was always obvious. Even from the moment the college was first given the name Calhoun in 1931. In other words, it wasn't a 19th century naming, but a 20th century naming. When the stained glass window was installed depicting slaves picking cotton with a portrait of the great man placed nearby. Calhoun was a racist white supremacist in 1804, 
1860 when he led South Carolina to secede, and in 1931 when the founding of the with the founding of the college, and now in 2017, the facts have not changed a bit. It just took a good long while for the hypocrisy to so weigh down on the truth that it couldn't be carried any longer. Now, I'm sharing this as an up-to-the-minute example of what can happen when a decision is made to affirm one's core values. In this case, it was a system-wide process, but still comprised of individual decisions. In other words, a disembodied system didn't make the decision, but individual people within the system had to make their decisions, which I'm guessing were highly nuanced by all interested parties, you know, students and professors and administrators and funders, development officers, trustees, alumni, and so forth. In some soul-searching way, each individual decision had to take account of what to do about idolizing a racist white supremacist in one of the nation's most storied institutions. An African-American student living in Calhoun College adorned with the slave window might have a different gut perspective on this than a prosperous 70-year-old white alumni living in Greenwich, right? We can imagine that it took 86 years to reach this point because until now the folks who had place and position within the system didn't really want to take it seriously. As I said, Calhoun was also Vice President, Secretary of State, Secretary of War, a U.S. Senator. And surely a lot of money had been donated in his name to the university. Although, you know, from this instance now, we can say that at least some of that cash was no doubt an extended legacy from the sweat of slaves. Because after all, slavery was at the heart of an economic system that produced wealth for comparatively few people. The slaughter in a Charleston church is what ripped the skin off this corruption of values today. But now, friends, you can sense as I'm talking about this, you might even be squirming a little bit or feel some discomfort. Why is that? You can sense how complicated these matters get when you start traveling down the path of self-examination leading to a decision about fundamental values. Right? I mean, you can sort of viscerally get it. Human nature being what it is, 
we likely just as soon not start that process at all. We defensively demur and say, well, you know, everyone's got skeletons in their closet, some more than others, but then, you know, some have a whole cemetery locked away. As the story is told near the end of Moses' life, as the Israelites are finally ending their 40 years in the wilderness and about to settle in the land of Canaan, Moses reminds them that they have a very crucial and fundamental decision in front of them. He starkly tells them they have options about the sort of people they will become. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. This reaffirms the constituting promise for the Hebrew people, reminding them of their most basic value commitment. And you know, the Hebrew scriptures tell story after story after story about their individual and collective tendency to let other matters, other gods, if you will, capture their attention, causing them to forget this core value at the heart of life. But the stories also tell of God's relentless pursuit of his people because God wants nothing more than their flourishing. At the heart of healthy religion. I'm going to pause and tell you this is the point. At the heart of healthy religion, or I should say, the heart of healthy religion keeps a laser focus on what matters most. Here it is. Loving God and loving everything God loves leads to abundant life. I'll say it again, I know it sounds extremely uncomplicated. Loving God and loving everything God loves leads to abundant life. That is the core insight from our religious tradition. From this flow, all of the qualities that reveal the glory of our humanity, things like humility, integrity, courage, fidelity, kindness, compassion, and justice, This is the religious impulse at the heart of Jesus' life and teaching. 
He invites everyone who will listen to strip away all of the life-sucking accretions that prevent human flourishing. That is the underlying agenda behind the Sermon on the Mount. In the portion we heard today, he radicalizes the law so that no one escapes judgment. No one. If you heard the scripture as it was read, you know that if we took it literally, this would be a room full of blind people without their limbs. (laughs) Who hasn't been viciously angry with someone, wishing them great harm? Who hasn't? Who hasn't lied or lusted or tried to take unfair advantage of someone? Who hasn't fallen into the trap from time to time of self-delusional corruption? You see, Jesus means to level the playing field here. Stripping away all of our rationalizations and defenses and conceits so we can see clearly the heart of the matter. So we can see it clearly. And here's the heart of the matter. Loving God and loving the things God loves leads to abundant life. That's it. You want to know the grand unified theory to abundant life? You want to know how to find a meaningful, joyful life filled with love and hope? Love God and love everything God loves. Gosh, that, you know, it sounds so shockingly simple. But then, you know, I know from personal experience that attempting to hold on to it cuts to the bone. Cuts you to the bone. This is not a sentimental discipline because after the manner of Jesus, it calls us to hold ourselves accountable to what we say we value most of all. And all sorts of things have captured our attention and allegiance that don't measure up. Some are actually antithetical to love. These need to be named and discarded for the sake of our flourishing. Sometimes, friends, we call this justice. Sometimes that's called justice. But you know, here's the, here's the wonderful thing. Here's the wonderful thing. Every single day presents to us a brand spanking new opportunity to choose life. Every single day. And I'd parse that further. Every single moment of every single day. 
presents us with a brand spanking new opportunity to choose life. Holy smokes, what a deal is that? No questions asked. No questions asked. Wow. Today, for instance, is a fantastic day to say yes to life and love. Perfect day for that. And I'll tell you that I choose right now to love God and all the things that God loves. That shall be my foundational commitment. And how good it is, how very good it is that we do this in the presence of others who are also choosing the way of abundant life. You know, I am heartened and strengthened by your presence and your willingness to join my imperfect intentions. And hopefully you are heartened and strengthened as well by the others in this room who you wouldn't have picked. You wouldn't have gone out and said, oh, would you please come in here today so I can find strength in your presence as I choose life and love today. And yet here we all are doing that very thing for one another. We're meant to do this in the company of friends. We call this today church. But, you know, at the heart of it, we're just a band of faltering pilgrims seeking to live and promote abundant life for all. Do you have any better agenda than that? <laughs>